Welcome to the Ian Bowsfield Experience. I'm glad you're here. This series of podcasts are just things that come up in my mind when I'm thinking about playing, when I'm thinking about teaching, and general thoughts about music. There are some things here that I hope you'll find really useful. And don't forget, if you've got any comments or if there's anything you want to discuss further, go to ianbowsfield.com. Well, another podcast. They're coming thick and fast, like the proverbial London bus. You stand in the rain waiting for 40 minutes for the number nine, and then three of them come at once. Um, (laughs) I'd like to start this um, second COVID questions with actually just tagging on a couple of things. Firstly, you remember that I said there were a couple of podcasts that I didn't release because I wasn't sure about them. And and I'd vented a few um, feelings of displeasure as to the plight of musicians at the moment, and I didn't want to be too negative. Anyway, one of them started um, with something you might be interested in. We recently had a holiday in Italy. Um, we take our main yearly holiday in what they call the Herbstferien in the, the um, autumn, the fall um, school holiday in Switzerland. Children have three weeks um, school holiday. It's the old in England, what they used to call the potato picking holiday, you know, uh, back in the days when crops used to ripen in the autumn rather than um, in early August, as they do now. <laughs> I was um, talking to recently to a very good friend of mine, Alan Meunier, a Domaine JJ Conferent in Nuit Saint-Georges, or Primeur. Um, and he said 30 years ago, when he started working in the Domaine, they harvested yeah, somewhere between the 6th and the 12th of, of October. And it's gone gradually back, and this year it was the 20th of August. Um, so anyway, still called the Herbstferien, and children don't have, we, we don't send them out into the fields in child labour to pick potatoes, but nevertheless they get three weeks off school. And we like taking our holiday then because um, it's not too hot and there aren't too many tourists. So we get in our car, usually it's become a bit of a tradition and drive down to um, Italy. We normally go to Liguria, to a beautiful place called Camoli. Uh, This year we decided to do something different. We went down to the Tuscan coast. But first we stopped in Bologna. Um, very underrated tourist destination, uh, Italy's gastronomic capital, and um, had some wonderful food, really wonderful food, beautiful city, absolutely beautiful. Had a lovely time, and of course I couldn't go to Bologna without calling by and paying homage to and saying thank you to Claudio Abbado, who spent the last 10 years of his life um, living there um, in 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 an apartment. Uh, bizarrely now you can stay in it's advertised as Claudio Abado's apartment on Airbnb I think it is on some holiday letting in in Italy and you can actually stay in the apartment that um, he uh, spent the last 10 years of his life for me that would have been a little overkill I don't know whether I would have slept very well (laughs) Um, but anyway I'll call by to say thank you to him Um, he was a difficult bugger and he was unpredictable but he was wonderful he was he had something special beyond even the likes in my opinion of of Bernstein Um, he had something magic he had something otherworldly about what he did it was wonderful and um, so I called by there and said you know a debt of gratitude and um, 
because he was the one who first, when I was 16, you know, I'd been told everything in, in Yorkshire's the best, the food, the people, the, the beer, the weather, even the weather. They even tried that one on me. And then you go to, you go to, I was 16. I got into the European Youth Orchestra, as it was called then. Get on a plane, go to uh, Palermo, Sicily, for four weeks. And it's like, hey, hang on a minute. No, that's nonsense. The weather's lovely. The food's incredible. And also I made friends with European colleagues who are still friends today. And it's like, you know, back in those days, it wasn't that long after the Second World War, when you think about it, 35 years is not that long. And we were taught that, you know, don't like German people, don't like French people. Um, sounds a bit like today in England as well, isn't it? And you go there and you think, hang on, no, these are wonderful people, you know, these are, and they're friends today. So I owe Claudio Bardo a great debt of gratitude for, um, opening my mind, even though it could be a terrible pain in the ass. We then went on to the Tuscan coast to in the Maremma, a place called Castiglione della Pescaia. And um, the reason why I'm telling you about my holidays is quite interesting. So we, we got this, this uh, cottage just near the castle and in the top of the village. And the first day I walked down the hill and I got to the Plaza della George Scholte. <laughs> I had absolutely no idea that I was going on a, um, you know, memory, down memory lane of the conductors that I played with. And apparently that's where Schulte had his holiday home, his vacation um, place. And he spent all his spare time there. Um, can't imagine he had much, but <laughs> about a week a year. I once remember talking to, uh, I was in um, Zubin Mater's house uh, in Los Angeles. And uh, he bought his house, Zubin Major bought his house off Steve McQueen. And uh, I said, how much time do you actually spend here? And he said, oh, you know, I, I make sure I get, you know, a couple of weeks a year here. <laughs> so anyway, I thought you might be interested. It was like that. So that was really an interesting thing. And it occurred to me how we could really have used couple of people like that um, today in the difficulties we're going through you know these movers and shakers I would like to have seen how people like that the artistic leaders of a community how they would have reacted and uh, in that regard I have to say it all seems to have gone very quiet I there was the initial concern from Simon about the plight of the members of the London Symphony Orchestra, you know, and, and, and rightly so. But I'm not hearing the great artistic leaders, sure, you know, the, the manager of this opera house or that one says, hey, we need money. But, you know, the, these, these great, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, the knights and the MBs and the OBs don't seem to be um, coming forth and trying to make change. And uh, I think that's a shame. So I would like to have seen what these people um, like Schulte, like Abada, um, who were real cultural figureheads, what they how they would have dealt with this situation right now that we're in. Um, I just wanted also to keep you up with what I'm doing at the moment. Um, for those of you 
out there who think that I'm a dinosaur and don't like doing things online. Oh, oh you're listening to me online, aren't you? Yes. Um, right. Uh, well, I'm spending a lot of time with my class and I keep saying my class is wonderful. My class is wonderful. Um, I spent two and a half hours yesterday talking to um, some students about the relationship between emotion and mathematics and started from the theory that um, when we finally discover the meaning of life it might actually be a mathematical formula and how mathematics and music is so incredibly intertwined and when we find the emotion behind music it's very often mathematically um, logical. And that doesn't mean to say that we play music like it's a cold mathematical um, formula. What I'm saying is the two things are very closely entwined and the logic of mathematics is very much mirrored in the logic of music when you think about it. I mean, hey, I don't want to go into this too much, but when you look at it, if you read those dots on the page, it's quite mathematical, you know, even just starting there. What we do ultimately is not, it's emotional, but... And went on to, you know, discussing Pierre Boulez's views on this, Michael Tilson Thomas's views on this, Niklaus Harnenko's views on this. Um, I think I think you need to know, which is the biggest takeout, I think, for my students yesterday was, hey, people, I'm not looking down on you. I'm not telling you these are my opinions. This is anti-wonderful. Throughout my life as a musician, a few crumbs have been swept off the table of the great, of the geniuses. And I've been very fortunate to pick those crumbs up. I know exactly my place in life. And um, I think that's what differentiates me from some other teachers. Um, not to put too fine a point on it. You know, I, it's, I, 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 I'm passing on. I'm passing on what I've learned from people way greater than I am. Um, next week I will be, um, I'm doing two classes uh, with the New World Symphony in Miami, um, which I'm looking forward to. I miss going to Miami. I've been going to Miami once or twice a year for the last 31 or two years. How long has New World Symphony been going? I've been going there, you know, so many times. Um, and I know my way around South Beach really very, very well. And, and I miss it. It's become kind of like a tradition, a part of my year. But anyway, it's the best we can do at the moment. So I'm going to be coaching them online. And I'm also doing a class for the Manhattan School of Music, which also is going to be uh, wonderful. Oh, yes. And today, even. Today, I'm doing a recital at the Welsh um, College of Music and Drama. Royal Welsh College of Music and Drama. Um, I'm doing a virtual one and we've put together a presentation of me playing some solos and um, and also with the class. And what we've done, you may be interested to learn, is there's so, the, the, fake news. There's so much fake news on, on the internet at the moment. And let's not leave that just to politics, the musical fake news. People who have had 500 goes at doing something. People who have chopped this up, changed this, put it through this interface with these microphones, put this acoustic on, made it sound like it's in the concert gabelle, you know, God forbid, um, you know, and, 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 and dropped this note in and changed this and edited that. And it's not truthful, is it? It's not real. We tell people that the reason why we're musicians is because we communicate one person to another 
and that's not real, is it? So what I've done, and no, you may not hear it because it's for the students in Cardiff. Um, I, from my side, I rehearse some things with my um, wonderful class accompanist, Francois Killian. Um, Tchaikovsky competition and Munich competition prize winner and we went into a room and recorded them. It was the worst room we could find and we recorded them on an iPhone. So I can put myself in the position of you poor students out there who were told you have to upload something and you're stuck in your in your grandpa's garage with a bloody iPhone and that's you're supposed to do an audition like that. So I, rather than polishing, there are no retakes, there are no patches. And we did that with um, a trombone trio, trombone quartet, and a trombone octet. And it's truthful. You know what? The things that are not together, ah, some intonation couple of bits where I thought I was being expressive and I wasn't changing the tone color. I just went out of tune, you know, and, but I wanted to just for a breath of fresh air say, we're human. Music is human. It's part of the human disposition. There is no beauty in perfection. There's only beauty in humanity. That's not an excuse to play badly, but so I've done that. That's what I'm doing. So what is it? Yeah, Manhattan School of Music, blah, blah, blah. So I recorded that. It's uploaded. And uh, I'll see you guys all later today. Okay, so on to your questions. Um, I feel uh, very honoured to have been contacted by Dan Thomas, who is um, the uh, solo euphonium player in the Black Dank Mills Band. And uh, for those of you who don't know him, his dad is a decent trombone player as well. He's pretty handy, that guy. He plays in Corey. He's a good man too. Um, and uh, Dan, um, quite understandably, you may have seen some stuff that he's put up on Facebook. He did some multi-tracking. I guess, you know, Dan has realised that euphonium is so easy. You know, if you hold it out of the window on a windy day, it plays itself. So with all of the rest of the time, that he's got spare because he doesn't need to spend that much time practicing the euphonium. He's actually been playing the trombone and he's good. He's good. It shouldn't be allowed. Then don't play anything else. Don't and stick to the bass trombone. If you start playing bolero and stuff like that, you'd be in big trouble. I'm going to come and get you. Anyway, he says he's just discovered these podcasts and they're bloody brilliant. Well, it's nice. Some people like that. That's great. You were wondering what, yeah, this is a good question. It's a general brass playing question. He was wondering what my thoughts were on wet versus dry embouchure. He says he personally played bone dry for many years, but found it hard to play with any moisture present, which was tricky to manage. And then he learned to play with a wet embouchure. Congratulations. I wish I could. And my playing definitely improved. But I'm now finding some issues with my mouthpiece moving slightly different parts of my, your face during pieces. Yeah, like you go into your eye. Especially when playing sustained high passages. Don't do that. Um, which are pretty much the normal playing euphonium rep. Well, come on. No, the euphonium doesn't play high. No, he doesn't. He doesn't. He used to play high like trombone. You guys don't do that now. You all go whoop and kind of things like that, don't you? 
Is there a happy medium? Um, are you simply overthinking something which will take care of itself in time through basic practice? No, I don't think you're overthinking it, um, Dan. Um, it is, a, it is a, a difficult subject. I, like you, used to do. I, I play completely dry. And it wasn't a conscious decision. No one told me to lick my lips, so I never did. And it has caused me, um, I think, issues over the years. But, but basically, playing a brass instrument, whatever you do, is going to cause you issues. If you play wet, um, you can you you have the the ability to move the mouthpiece on your face a little bit for positive reasons, but they can also become negative. If you um, play wet, you can get chapped lips, you can get sore, swollen lips. But if you play dry, because you can't move very easily, they'll swell up for that reason. So there's there's pluses and minuses. Um, if I could just give my my feelings on this. Um, Dan, um, I'd like to keep the system as simple as possible. I've considered this obviously a lot over the years and I stay dry. I hate the feeling of, of being wet on my lips. So that's probably a bit of a personal thing. Um, but I, um, yeah, I, I just don't like that feeling. Um, it's led to a lot of crises for me with mouthpieces and coatings on mouthpieces. Some of you may have seen that I play with these kind of like black plastic discs on my mouthpiece because um, it enables me to move the mouthpiece on my face easier without being wet. I've gone through phases of if I wanted to play well, I used to was it about three days stubble? So I wouldn't shave for two, three days before a concert, for a really important concert. Because again, that stopped the mouthpiece kind of sticking to my face. I also realized when I started designing mouthpieces that um, when, when you know, you're working with, with people, they say, well, bring your favorite mouthpieces in and let's see which ones you like. And I had, this is years ago, I had a, um, a Shilke 51, and a Dennis Wick 4AL. And I'd kind of, before I started making my own mouthpieces, I'd kind of switched between those two. And um, I had worn them out. My finger had, has nearly gone through the Shulky 51, my index finger, where I put it on the mouthpiece. And the Dennis Wick, looked, its rim was like the surface of the moon. And there was no bloody plating on it at all. And... Um, Nothing that we made made me happy. And then we realized why. It wasn't the mouthpiece. It was this smooth, silver, beautiful, polished surface that was sticking to my face. And that was why I wasn't comfortable on it. So I then went through this phase of finding matte nail varnish, or not shiny mail, um, nail varnish, uh, matte nail varnish, which kind of caused a bit of an abrasive surface and I played on that and then we developed these discs and actually um, my project since we got locked down with this thing and we lost all of our work seven or eight months ago was to wean myself off that and play on a shiny silver surface and I've managed it but I'm still not playing wet um, I'm not sure Dan 
and I don't want to put a worm in your ears, the Germans would say, I'm not sure how healthy it is to be sliding the mouthpiece around on your face anyway. The thing that I like about playing dry is I kind of, it goes in one place and it stays there. And okay, I have an embouchure break. So, you know what, Dan? I'm not answering your questions. I'm telling you my feelings, how I've considered this. I have, like I said, I've tried playing wet. Um, but I will tell you this. I have never had chapped lips. I've never had sore lips. I've never had red lips. I've never had a mark on my face. And I've never played wet. Now, that might sound like I'm making a campaign to do what uh, I do. I'm not. I'm giving you my thoughts. I have, over the years, really wished that I played wet because I don't think I would have an embouchure break. I think it would be more like an automatic car going through the register. So, um, let me see. Is there, is there a happy medium? I don't think there is, Dan. I think you either play wet or you play dry. And I know examples of people who are wonderful players who do either or. You can't say, oh, well, all of the, you know, 90% of the best players play dry or play wet or whatever you can't. It's completely mixed. But there are more top players who play dry than I think you, you might realize. There are quite a lot of us who do that. Um, so, again, I'm, I'm giving you my feelings, Dan, and leaving you with some question marks. Actually, Dan, I'm recording this now as an insert a few days after I recorded that first segment. I don't often do this, but I've been thinking about um, the embouchure quite a bit recently. I've had experience of working with quite a lot of people with um, embouchure issues and um, things like dystonia. And it does... I'm not an expert on this. That said, I don't know many people who are, if any. One thing for me is critical, whether you play wet or whether you play dry, the embouchure needs to be independent of the mouthpiece. We should not be forming the embouchure with the mouthpiece. Um, I, as I've said, you, you can put any mouthpiece on my face and I'll play. It makes no difference. That means my embouchure is already set up and running. And as long as, as long as that's not the issue, there are people who just simply can't change mouthpiece because their mouthpiece is part of their embouchure. And mine isn't and never has been. Whether that's because I play dry or not, I don't know. But we need to have a self-supporting independent embouchure that the mouthpiece then goes on to. And that's something... Um, I mean, we can work around the situation if, if, if that's not how it works. And there are plenty of very fine play, players who don't. But I'm currently working on a theory at the moment that perhaps some of the background causes to embouchure difficulties are that the mouthpiece is helping to form the embouchure. And that's something that I work quite hard with my students to try to uh, eradicate and again, please remember, I'm not claiming to be an expert on this, but I don't know many people who are. Anyway, I'd be very interested, uh, Dan, to hear your thoughts on this. I've had a series of uh, kind of wacky questions from Mark Graham. Mark, I don't know you, I don't think, I don't think we've ever met. Your uh, questions are so wacky, I like them. They're my kind of thing. Um, the first one's a, a bit boring. 
But it gets interesting after that. What are the biggest mistakes novices make when practicing? What are some mistakes that are most common even at the professional level? Um, Mark, I'd say perspective um, and an overview. Uh, development, practice and teaching is a horizontal process. That doesn't mean to say you should drink a bottle of whiskey before and then fall over. That's not what I'm talking about. It's development is, is like this, this, this long, slow line. Not many things improve with um, flashes of light and brilliance and I've got a eureka moment. Sometimes they do happen and it's wonderful in the practice room and in the teaching room, but they don't happen too often. Um, I find so often with my students, I say, look, okay, we need this. We've got this thing we're going to work on. We're going to, how long are we going to spend working on it? Three months, six months. And um, this is what I want you to do. This is what I want you to work on. This is how I want you to do it. And this is how long I want you to do it. And when you've done that, you've done your job. Walk away from it. Don't worry about it. You've done what you can. Don't carry these things around with you the whole time. Do your work, leave it. Be happy with what you've done. And because... I'll work on issues with students and they'll come back a week later and say, uh, and, and play something. I'll say, are you, are you happy with that? And they'll go, no. And I say, well, why not? It's, it's much better than it was last week, isn't it? Yeah, but it's still not right. <laughs> yeah, but it's better than it was last week. And if it gets the same amount better in the next week, where are you going to be in a week's time? Imagine you make that same progress every week for the next six months. It's going to be amazing. Let's not worry about things. So it's the vertical state of the union. This is not good enough. And it's extremely depressing. I think that's the biggest mistake that people make in their practice, to be honest, um, which is a bit of a shame, really. Um, so that's a kind of like a very rule of thumb guide to what's the biggest mistake. You stop getting doom and gloom about things development is a horizontal line not a vertical one um good if i had to train someone for two months for a competition seriously and they had never touched a trombone before in their life you are wacko and you had a million dollars riding on the results now you're talking what would the training look like uh what if they only had a month now um Mark, if you've listened to many of these podcasts, you'll know I'm not a big fan of competitions, or certainly not the way they are commonly um, organized and run. So, or judged, should I say, uh, more precisely. Uh, so let's, your, your question is so totally fantastical. So you've got to allow me a bit of freedom here to um, have an idea, an ideal world competition. Um, so many competitions are like, okay, the Tomasi Concerto's there, um, candidate seven played it differently to the way Michel Becquet played it, therefore they are out. Um, so that's kind of how so many of them work. If in an ideal world, if I were to run a competition, a proper competition, which I probably will do at some point coming up soon, uh, watch this space. A soloist is someone who can communicate. Above all, it's the communication. This is not dressage in horse riding. They made a false step here. It's like, do they speak to you on an emotional level? Do they speak to a car dealer? Uh, do they speak to a hairdresser? Do they speak to, you know, the person whose hobby is riding horses? So it's that human touch, the 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 uh, outreach, the contact. Are they ex are they exciting? 
Do they do something that the listener is going to take away and think about when they're having their schnitzel or their burger later that day or even when they're going for a walk with their dog a week later I remember that was really beautiful is it going to bring something to them so if I had two months to train someone on the on the competition first of all I think I would try and bring out their artistic thing and remember we haven't even got to the trombone yet so maybe send them for some acting lessons um, uh, parallel to, to this and try and sort of bring out their performing side much more and if i had okay two months well i had to break it to you i had to teach them what a scale was i teach them what an arpeggio was um assuming that this person had never played the trombone before are you talking about the concertmeister of the uh, vienna philharmonic or are you talking about um the farmer down the road out here because it's, it's a bit of a difficult one i guess i would like i say i would get the artistic side going and the communication i teach them what performance was and teach them that that's the goal of the, what they're aiming for I would then um, teach them scales and arpeggios and how to get a basic sound out of a trombone bloody hell Mark what are you doing to me here um, and I guess the only chance we would stand now here's the thing you can't expect someone to play something to a great technical proficient level within two months but if you got them to try and create something artistic in their head and forget trombone technique, you're not going to learn that in two months. It's not going to happen. But if you really create a sound in your head and could bring that sound out of the instrument, I think that way the technique we could just sweep to one side. So if I had a million dollars riding on it, I guess... The only long shot, the lottery ticket approach, Mark, would be that they're going to do something touching and beautiful, which on a human level. Um, so, silly question. Even sillier answer, I guess, is what I would do. Who are the most impressive lesser-known trombone teachers? Now, I, this is really a good question. I like, I like this. My, um, when you think of the... Um, uh, the the, the well-known, certainly in, in Europe, trombone teachers, um, uh, apart from me, and you're looking at um, Stefan Schultz, people like that. So leaving those out. You know, I have the great privilege most years of doing the auditions for the Gustav Mahler Youth Orchestra. And um, I feel a great a connection to the Gustav Mahler Youth Orchestra. And every year, the... the the great and the good of European um, students take the audition. Thank you very much for doing it. Um, this year we can't do it because of the virus. We decided not to do the auditions, but I look forward to doing them again. And do you know what? When the same things, both good and bad, come from the same institutions every year, I know it's not about the students, it's about the teacher. So if there are great senses of performance and I notice hang on they're always coming from this place or this wow that student was really really well set up really stable where did they come from and you look and it's ah oh, yeah that's another one from there or this institution you know they, they, they always seems to be incredibly soloistic but the, the, the low register is a little bit uh, questionable it's always from the same place so that's how I can tell whether it's about the teacher and not about the um, student and without wishing to make any advertisements for anyone in particular there's a guy called Danny Perpignan 
who teaches in Seville and in Barcelona. And year after year, his students are always consistently well-trained, well-disciplined, well-organized, always play really well. Jesper Juhl in Copenhagen, uh, he might be, uh, Jesper, one of my first ever students. Um, he, uh, Jesper might be, Jesper, don't be insulted by being a lesser-known teacher. Obviously in Denmark, you're a legend, but on a world scale, people don't probably see you as being, you know, the great teacher that you are. So um, I would say Jesper Juhl there. Um, I think, and again, in, in Germany, for the people who don't know it, I think Henning Wiegreber does a very excellent job, not a very good job, an excellent job in Stuttgart, um, who um, produces, you know, the, the, you know I think he, he gives a good modern twist on German style and sound. I think he does a very good job at that. The, um, and of course, David Silva in Portugal, magician, Pied Piper, um, for students up to the age of 18, possibly the best one I know. Bear in mind, I'm looking from a um, European perspective. Um, uh, David uh, has given his life to his students in Artav in uh, Porto. Wonderful. He's probably not known. I've actually recorded an interview with him. Um, um, uh, I haven't released it yet. I need to listen to it. Bless him, David, he's, he, he's wonderful, but it was in English and he was a bit, David was not feeling particularly strong with his English that day. So I need to really make sure that everyone can understand what he's saying. But he, he is great. That's the hardest age group, 12 to 18. And he's the best one I know right now. Um, probably not none. He's the one who's responsible for this wave of brilliant Portuguese trombone players that's dominating Europe right now. Um, I have a couple of them in my class and they're wonderful. Um, so he's another one. The previous best of that, he doesn't teach anymore, a guy called Alan Hutt, H-U-T-T, -T, formerly in the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, and um, he taught at Wells Cathedral School. He's retired now, tragically, tragically. So so um, there you go. And if I was to, oh, bugger, if I was forced to pick only one exercise to train someone's musicality, what would that be? This is, guy, you are throwing marbles under my feet. This is, this is amazing stuff. Ooh, yeah, okay. Well, that's, um, forced to pick only one exercise to train someone's musicality, what would that be? Okay. I would um, train them, I would give them a listening exercise. How to listen. I would teach them how to listen. So I'm, I'm sort of stretching your question out a little bit. There is no one exercise to develop someone's musicality. Um, you develop someone's musicality by an attitude. And the attitude is how they listen to something and how they take from that and how they learn. So I would give them a, uh, a list of opera things, probably on YouTube, to listen to and teach them what to listen to and that they should listen to that every day and then see how they can apply that to their playing. Uh, now, ladies and gentlemen, I would love to give you that list, but I don't have the time to do it. Um, that's why I do podcasts instead. <laughs> All right. Hey, Mark, thank you very much. That was, they were tough questions. Thank you. I'm just going to drop an insert in here, which um, is a bit trombone-y. Um, 
Or, so it might be of interest to those not only who play the trombone, but teach the trombone. You may be aware that I teach my seven-year-old son the trombone. Um, just started, just kind of in the summer. And I don't do much with him. I do 10 or 15 minutes a day and I play with him and, you know, should do warm-ups with him now, which is really cool. Now, I've just taught him a melody. They went, kind of teaching him to to play melodies and he sings in the minster choir anyway so he's kind of used to singing here's the thing there's this kind of like um question as to which camp you belong to as a teacher or a player do we tongue every note when we play legato or do we only tongue those that we need to tongue so in other words if we cross a harmonic do we have to use our tongue and i just wanted to pass on to you that yes, I played it for my son and um, I sung it to him. And there was absolutely no thought in his mind as to whether he needed to tongue when he crossed a harmonic. He didn't do it. It happened totally naturally to him. So folks, don't pollute your students and tell them that it's necessary to tongue every note in legato. It's not. I've had um, an email from Len Ferguson um, and the subject of it is feeling comfortable. And he says that I shared the stage with him on the Roy Thompson Hall when he was bass trombonist with the Canadian Staff Band. And I was a soloist in the early 90s, 1994. I remember that very, very well, Len. That was a very scary experience. That's a big concert hall. Uh, I think there's still a decent recording of it out there somewhere. Okay, so he's been enjoying the podcasts, and he says he's been the bass trombonist with the Ottawa Symphony Orchestra since 2001, Alan Trudel, music director, and I have a question regarding feeling comfortable in an orchestra. Um, say hi to Alan, he's a good guy and a, a wonderful musician. Um, he says he's afraid that he knows what I'm going to say about him feeling uncomfortable in an orchestra. Uh, the orchestra specializes in romantic and post-romantic repertoire that offers lots of opportunity to play and get scared, I add. I am finally seeing repertoire a second time in my career, but still have the feeling of unease. Not nerves, just never quite comfortable. Perhaps that's just how it is. Any suggestions appreciated? Um, carry on and take care from Ottawa. Len, well, first of all, I'd like to point out to you, Len, what a privilege it is for you to feel uncomfortable at the moment. There are many of us who would give anything to stand on stage and feel uncomfortable, but we can't. Um, I, it's now starting to bite with me. I'm getting really fed up with this. I think it's about time they started doing those instant tests. So I could turn up in a country, have a test, find out whether I'm clear or not, and go and do my work because... Um, I'm starting to feel very much, not even like an amateur trombone player. Amateur trombone players used to do concerts anyway. Um, okay, Len, I know what you're talking about. There's, first of all, I'd like to commend you on your professionalism. The reason why your playing is going to stay healthy and the reason why um, this issue is going to improve for you is because you've reached out. So many professional players hide their issues and just leave them the elephant in their psychological room. They know they're not feeling comfortable. They know that issues are growing in the background, but they're embarrassed to talk about it. 
Um, I don't know whether it's a strength or a fault in, in my personality, but I've always put my hand up and said, oh, I've got a problem. And in many cases, people didn't believe me, but certainly when I was in the London Symphony in my formative days, I used to discuss all of my fears and all of my concerns about playing with my, my colleagues. Um, the worst bit of advice I got, I think I might have pointed out in the past, was from Maurice Murphy when I said, yeah, Maurice, I'm really worried about this, I'm scared about it. And he said, nah, have you tried practicing? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, sorry, I can't help you then. Um, <laughs> but others were much more, he wasn't being mean, that, that was genuine advice. Um, others were very, very helpful. So the first thing to all of you out there, if you're having issues, don't see that as a sign of weakness. In fact, you reaching out to your colleagues may be the hope that they get, you know, that someone else is big enough and brave enough to say, I'm really struggling with that. Um, what would you advise? That opens the door for them to then discuss their issues with you and you can be, can be very therapeutic. Um, so that's the first point that I'd make. The second point that I'd make, Len, is the fact, um, I'm not going to name him, but one, <laughs> one former colleague said, you know, Ian, I've noticed you, you, you sometimes lose sleep for a week before something nasty like Burke Three Pieces. <laughs> and sometimes I lose sleep in the week following. <laughs> um, and I was always a bit of a, a, a warrior. I always could see the danger coming. Um, and would know if I was doing Schumann 3, if I was doing Berg 3 Pieces, if I was doing Brahms 1, if I was doing Bolero, I would have to go into training. I would know what the danger was and I would try and limit as much of that danger as, as possible. So, so you're saying, you know, you don't feel comfortable about it. And it's, you know, sometimes it's, it's not, a, not bad to feel uncomfortable. It's, it's not a nice thing to sit there coming in, creeping around or coming in on difficult things. Um, what you need, Len, what we need, we need two things. We need stillness in our body and we need stillness in our mind. Um, and it's a little bit like, basically, you're not going to have stillness in your mind if you're not confident of the apparatus you're going to put the air through. And I don't mean the instrument, I mean your technical apparatus. There's not enough... Uh, emphasis placed on the ability to articulate one note. Too much teaching is about fantasy and, you know, getting musical ideas across. But actually, when you play in an orchestra, where most of us traditionally have earned our money, it's not about what you want. It's either, it's first, first of all, it's what the composer wants. Secondly, it's what the conductor wants. And thirdly, thirdly, it's who you're accompanying at the time, which on bass trombone is usually the case. You'd be accompanying or fitting in with something else. So your ideas, your feelings are secondary. What we need to do is we need to take on board what the composer wants, what the conductor wants, and then turn them into our ideas to try and be part of the music. Because if you're just playing emotionless, dead notes, because he says, pianissimo, you're going to come in. I, that, I could never do that. I had to assimilate the musicality of the music, assimilate the musicality that the conductor wanted and try to make that happen. It wasn't about me. It was about the music. It was about the composer. It was about the conductor. And it was about serving my colleagues. 
Um, those of you who know me a little bit will maybe be surprised to hear that. Those of you who know me really well will not be surprised to hear that. Um, so that's the first thing that this thing about playing one note, just the breathing and the release and the stillness in your embouchure, the stillness in your body and placing that emphasis on the ah, the beauty of the one note articulation and taking that into your practice room is very, very important. And then the stillness in your mind will follow. When I, when I played um, Brahms one, I'll, I'll tell you very clearly that there was no, there was no doubt about that. There was no chance that it was going to go wrong. I, um, I had a system, and I stuck to it. So I looked at what I had to do, and I worked out a system of breathing and releasing and timing. Timing. There was um, one of the greatest first horn players that I ever worked with, Volkan Tombuk in Vienna. Um, he never looked at the conductor. He said, I'm not going to trust him. I just sort of close my eyes and work out when I should play and come in. I could never quite do that. He managed to do it quite successfully, very successfully. And I, you need, as soon as you lose your timing in an orchestra, it's over. So you need to have that pulse running through the whole time. Um, and the problem with a lot of quiet entries in the romantic and post-romantic repertoire is you have a trombone player conducting you. So Alan knows exactly what it is to breathe and release and come in on an entry. So I'm sure that's really good. But many conductors are string players or pianists. Uh, pianists, yeah, okay, you get stuck in a room eight hours a day and then all of a sudden they're responsible for the well-being of a hundred musicians. And no one teaches them how to speak to you. No one teaches them how to interact. No one teaches them how to get the best out of you without damaging you. And then there's string players who, you know, if you're a string player, it's wonderful. You see, yeah, I've done it. I can do it. You know what? You can come in from nowhere. You pick up the violin. You rest the bow on the string. You don't do anything. And then when you feel like it, you slowly start to pull the bow and some sound happens. It's fine. It's good. Uh, and as we all know, it's not like that for us. We need timing. We need to be able to breathe. And we need to know when we're going to come in and how we're going to come in. So despite the artistic choreography of someone who, with, with the uh, ever-descending slow downbeat, because it looks good on the publicity photos, we have to work out our timing. And I hate doing it, but sometimes you have to take that timing kind of away and out of the hands of the, um, of the conductor. And so that would, lend, that would be my advice. I hope that helps. Um, but I would say, let's, as they say, circle back to the first thing. It's about the music. Um, you have to assimilate the music. You have to feel the music and not just obey what the conductor's doing. You have to understand what it is that the conductor wants you to do and then make it happen for them. I guess that's why I was popular with most conductors as well. Um, so that would be that that would be the main thing. It's not about me, it's not about you, it's about the music. Have the timing of the music within your your body. Um, and also again, 
congratulations to you, Len, for reaching out. It means you're a top professional and it's what we should all do and it's what's going to protect you um, against what's happening. I think also, I think we also need to accept that it can't always go well. And this was something that I struggled with quite quite badly. You know, I, I, I made a mistake once <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean it to sound like that. I made quite a bad mistake once. And my wife said, you realize you haven't spoken for 24 hours. I know other people, famous first trombone players, who lock themselves in the toilet for a couple of days. Literally. They go and hide in the toilet if they really knock something over. We don't like doing it. But it happens. Um, I think also, Len... What do you need to do is show the same tolerance to yourself as you show to others. I, you know, if someone else makes a mistake, it doesn't alter your opinion as to how good they are as a player. You still see them for what they are, but they don't see it that way. They're, they're shaking their head and they're, they're depressed and so cool it. You, you are the musician, the player that you are, and nothing is going to change that. It's fine. And there's a great saying, which, which is damn right. Form is temporary, class is permanent. Don't worry, it's fine. But look after the music, serve the music, and enjoy the privilege that we have to serve the music. Well, there we are. We're at 47 minutes now, and... I've had a load of questions from an amazing man called Sean Reusch um, in California, who is, ah, you have to meet him. He's a great guy. And he sent me a load of questions um, that are not really questions. They are subjects for podcasts. And I intend plowing through them either in a, some of them are questions, and I'll do that. And uh, the rest of them are great ideas for podcasts. Brass bands, for those who don't know anything about them, perhaps you should stay that way. Um, that kind of thing. So I'm going to do that. And also, I'm planning on doing one called Why Do We Teach? And it'll be a personal insight into what my motivation is to be obsessed with young people's futures and helping them. So there we go. That's COVID questions too. I hope you enjoyed it. Stay in contact. So there you go. I hope you enjoyed that. If there are any issues that you found particularly interesting, don't forget to contact me and always go to uh, ianbowsfield.com for lots more interesting stuff.